Next, this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. ReachMD is taking an in-depth look at how medicine is working toward health and longevity for people around the world. Join us all this month for the latest medical research and treatment across borders. Lost in the ever-evolving diversity of the American populace is what happens when one of our newest, or in some case, undocumented immigrants becomes extraordinarily ill. Under our current system, hospitals are often left to shoulder the logistical and financial burden of care. How are our hospitals coping with this responsibility? And how does this impact the care we can provide to these patients and more broadly, to all of our patients? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Stephen Larson, Assistant Dean of Global Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Larson is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on migrant health. Welcome, Dr. Larson. Thanks for having me. Dr. Larson, can you start us off with some statistics on the frequency of repatriation cases to capture the scope of the issue? You know, that's a very challenging question to answer because I don't know that the data is really there. It's a situation that's largely gone unnoticed until the recent article by Mrs. Sontag in the New York Times. Well, what exactly is repatriation? Repatriation is, in terms of medical issues, is the movement of an individual from one location to the other. And in this case, it crosses an international boundary. Typically, the article in question by Ms. Sontag addressed the repatriation of an individual who was injured here in the United States and repatriated to the highlands of Guatemala. It's essentially the movement of that body, of that person. So what are the issues here? You know, they're many-fold. These individuals, these cases, they tend to be very complicated. They tend to many times involve trauma and individuals who are now invalided and oftentimes bedridden, and they become almost wards of the state in the sense that after the initial trauma care is provided or the life-saving procedures are enacted, you know, and the dust settles, you're left with an individual who's fairly complicated in terms of the manpower they need, the services they need, and there are very scant resources. When we say wards of the state, which state are we talking about? The individual states that those patients are now residing in. Who owns this patient, meaning who owns the responsibility? Does the country from which this patient came own this patient, or do we now own this patient? I don't know the answer to that. I think that's one for the legal folks to sort through. For me as a healthcare provider, it's more the ethical implications as an individual who's in need of my service, who's in front of me, and that's my patient. If a patient comes into the emergency room, gets complex surgery, goes to the intensive care unit, and then is in a stabilized situation, what's the normal process by which any patient gets transferred to a skilled facility or a similar facility? As an ER doc, I'm not involved on that process, although I've had some patients and we're familiar with the social services that become involved, family resources that become explored. And then I think there's generally an attempt to find the best scenario for that individual on a case-by-case basis that takes into account, you know, resources and availability of space, the degree of needs, it's a pretty complicated equation. 
I don't really involve myself in that from the emergency department perspective. What does a hospital do if no facility will accept this patient? Well, I've seen patients who've spent very protracted courses in the hospital occupying a bed, and that's both citizen and non-citizen. You know, it's not uncommon. And how does the hospital feel about this? I would have to imagine if you're an institution that's running a high census and that bed is tied up, it costs money, it costs resources, and it diminishes, you know, the potential for revenue. Is this problem most common in border states, or is it seen in states that are not the border states? You know, that's an excellent question. And if you'd asked me that 20 years ago in the late 80s, early 90s, I would have said it's principally your border state issue, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Florida, and then if you threw in New York, those are areas with high, back in the 80s, high flow of undocumented immigrants. By the late 90s, there was just a broad movement of immigrants nationwide, no longer confined to the border states, and in fact, no longer confined to rural areas, but becoming a more urbanized movement. And that took place in large cities like Philadelphia and small towns like Hazleton, PA. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. Stephen Larson, Assistant Dean of Global Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Larson is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on migrant health. We're discussing issues of immigration and health care in the United States. Dr. Larson, does it make a difference in terms of repatriation, whether the patient is a legal immigrant or an illegal immigrant? I don't know that there's a distinction. And honestly, I don't know that there's legal precedent. And I think that's the context of the article by the New York Times is that that will be decided in Florida where there's, you know, the case in progress. And and I'm certain in other states that were mentioned in the second Times article, I suspect ultimately this was going to become a very big, you know, legal challenge that will go all the way to the top. Well, generally speaking, have there been patients who have actually been sent back to their country? Absolutely. And what happens to them? Well, you know, in the first New York Times article, when I commented on it being a a death sentence in certain ways, that individual who was repatriated to Guatemala is very complicated from a post-traumatic perspective, significant head injuries, I believe, seizure disorder. And when you have somebody who is no longer functioning at the level that they were walking, talking, fully ambulatory, now requiring wheelchairs and assistance and a lot of manpower to get from point A to point B, you simply need to go to the point of origin. You know, when when we're talking about undocumented individuals in this country, these were not computer programmers, high-tech individuals. These are fairly unskilled laborers coming from very rural and remote regions of their countries of origin. So throughout Mexico and Central America, these are individuals who the infrastructure of those towns is already pretty stripped down. But wouldn't they be sent to a facility in that country that would be appropriate for their level of care? They may be transferred there, but then ultimately those resources are going to run out and they're going to be removed. They'll be put to, as in the case in Guatemala, they'll be returned to their villages. And, you know, a wheelchair doesn't really operate well in mud and dirt and <laughs> unpaved roads. I mean, it's, I mean, not to be 
facetious. There no, are, I understand. There's just a certain reality. We see individuals, for instance, who show up and suddenly declare themselves as patients with complete renal failure requiring dialysis. Those are very challenging cases. But you know if you return them to the countries or if they go back to their countries of origin, the access to the system that's going to allow them to continue with dialysis is going to be somewhat shoddy, particularly if they're living in a very remote region of the country. They have no income and no resources. Now, in these situations, what role does a patient's physician play in the process as opposed to the administration of a hospital? I think the do-no-harm mantra that we operate under is first and foremost. Understanding the limitations of those countries and the realities, I think, mandates that as a physician, you know, regardless of one's country of origin, that you ensure the wellness of that patient. For me, it's just, you know, an ethical kind of standard I hold myself to. Try to find out exactly what the resources are, what the realities are when you have a patient that you're contemplating repatriation. And, you know, be an advocate. And sometimes that will run contra to the administration. But, you know, that's that's our job, I think. Will the physicians in the United States actually directly communicate with the physicians in the receiving country? The cases that I've seen haven't directly involved me, so I can't comment. I know that at the level of social work to ascertain dialysis treatment, for instance, that those discussions have been had, whatever a dialysate is being recommended, etc. As you mentioned, there's such a great number of people coming into our country, and certainly our health care system is not ideal. How do we solve this problem? That's a tremendously valid question. I think When you work in immigrant health, and there are certainly individuals who have dedicated their careers to this throughout the nation, you try to find the best practice. And in many cases, when you look at the demographics of the population that's immigrated, for instance, in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, when the agricultural industry Mexicanized in the United States, basically two-thirds of the labor force represented Mexican immigrants, of those individuals who had come here, the ratio of male to female was three to four to one predominantly young men, young healthy men. So the issues of chronic illness really weren't that major, relatively healthy population to both employ and to provide care for. Beginning in the 90s, the mid-90s to the late 90s, as the immigration patterns accelerated, you suddenly had almost parity, male to female. And so then issues that move outside of just basic routine health care, embracing, for instance, prenatal care, Mm -hmm. labor and delivery, pediatric care, whole family units sort of began to develop a presence in states outside of the border states. The cost of care rises, but by and large, these are still relatively healthy populations. And so strategies to meet those needs that, you know, have been pushed forward are, are really based on primary care. Over the years, as the population is acclimated and issues of now chronic care start to rise, you know, obesity, diabetes, hypertension. Again, those can principally be taken care of in the, you know, in the front lines. It's the occasional case that needs to get into an academic medical center, for instance, that will, you know, generate the the sort of situation that we're talking about. And much of it's actually trauma. I mean, the years that I've been doing it, and I've been working in immigrant health since 93, you know, those are the real challenging cases. Sometimes you hear that a patient's destiny will depend on what emergency room they visit initially. 
Whether they receive care or uh, repatriated or their disposition, any truth to that statement? Well, you know, again, I don't know the numbers in terms of repatriation. It's not a very frequent encounter that I've seen working in the southeastern Pennsylvania area. And I get a lot of phone calls from docs and providers and community folks asking questions and advice. You know, those numbers of cases aren't that large. As far as the safety net emergency departments across the southeastern Pennsylvania region, Paul provide access to the system, and I don't think they deny that. So the way, at least in terms of trauma in southeastern Pennsylvania is, you know, from the community, the referrals go into a level one trauma center. And again, there's no screening based on immigration status. You know, the patient comes first. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Larson. We've been discussing issues of immigration and health care in the United States. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment Focus on Global Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series Focus on Global Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com and download ReachMD's new iPhone app, Medical Radio, to listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you enjoy on XM160, plus CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Download Medical Radio today.